Amen. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul here begins a new section, but just because this is a new section, it doesn't mean he's talking about something altogether different. He's going to begin a conversation about spiritual gifts. Uh, he is talking to the church at Corinth about unity in the church. Uh, he is admonishing them, in fact, toward unity, unity through maturity in the faith, and maturity in the faith is understanding. It is a gaining of knowledge, but not knowledge by itself. It is a gaining of knowledge in love, knowledge for the purpose of edification, not for the purpose of puffing up. Thus, we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 12, after Paul has talked about Christian liberty, after Paul has talked about partaking of the Lord's Supper and not leaving anyone hungry because people get selfish taking the Lord's Supper, after his conversation about Christian um, order in the church service, uh, after his conversation, after his admonishment about um, eating meat sacrificed to idols and uh, not being judged by another's conscience, but also not being a burden on someone else's conscience, after all of this, he gets at spiritual gifts for the purpose of admonishing the church toward unity. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 14 together. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. In this passage overall, you know, the heading in your Bible might read something like the use of spiritual gifts or spiritual gifts or concerning spiritual gifts. This passage is not primarily about spiritual gifts, though that is in Paul's peripheral. That is what the church is asking about. That's what Chloe's people probably asked Paul about. This passage is primarily about the preeminence of the Holy Spirit in the work of the 
church. So as we read through this passage, we learn way more about the Holy Spirit than we do about our spiritual gifts. Uh, The Holy Spirit is primary in this passage. Our spiritual gifts are secondary in this passage. Let's begin in chapter 12, verse 1, and we will work our way through this text like our custom is. Now concerning spiritual gifts. There are many people in the church, it seems to be the case in the church at Corinth, many people in the church who prioritize spiritual gifts over everything else. I think primarily maybe the gift of healing, uh, speaking in tongues is up there with that. And we refer to this as charismatic Christianity, charismatic religion. I believe we have one here. (laughs) Yeah. This charismatic Christianity though almost idolatrizes spiritual gifts. And I think this was happening in the church at Corinth too, like you are more spiritual if you speak in tongues. I think that seems to be the bending of the text, especially as we move through chapter 14 and Paul gets at, you know, I praise the Lord, I speak in tongues more than all of you. But not in a church service, you idiots. (laughs) You know, something to that effect. He says, I'd rather speak, what, five words of prophecy than a thousand in tongues, because that edifies the church. And so he he speaks to the congregation, almost affirming the gift of tongues as a real gift, but then saying, but it's, it's not edifying to the church. Almost as if to say, do that at home or find an interpreter, right? And so Paul knows about spiritual gifts. Paul himself is spiritually gifted, And so he speaks to the church at Corinth, which has idolatrized spiritual gifts and judges people based on the presence of spiritual gifts that they see. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Paul used this language in the previous chapter, didn't he? I want you to understand. I don't want you to be unaware. So Paul, he's about to write something concerning spiritual gifts with the Holy Spirit having primary place in the text in in his teaching, and he doesn't want the congregation to be unaware. So whatever he's about to instruct concerning spiritual gifts and whatever he's about to teach concerning the Holy Spirit, it's something that is intelligible enough to grab hold of. So whatever spiritual gifts are, they are intelligible. Things to be understood. They are not mysteries. They are not chaotic. They are ordered and understandable such that we can be aware of the gifts themselves and what they mean and their purpose. So brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were Pagans, referring to everyone in the congregation. Isn't it great to know that everyone in the congregation was once a pagan? Such were we also before we came to Christ, before our conversion to Christ. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols. And Paul uses this word to designate what kind of idols they were. In fact, every idol was mute. It could not speak, could not think, could not act. The idols are mute. They do nothing. However you were led, you were led astray to the idols. Why did the pagans in the first century worship idols? 
or they worshipped idols in order to get something for themselves. The same was true with the Egyptians who worshipped their false gods and the Greeks at this time who worshipped their false gods. You worship a god in order to get your crops to flourish, in order to stay alive, in order to get the environment to work in your favor, in order to make money, in order to make friends. You, you worship idols in order to gain a place in political society. You worship idols for the sake of self-advancement and self-exaltation. And however you are led, when people worship idols, or even, I would say, when people claim to worship Christ but have this motivation of like self-exaltation, self-advancement, self-healing, getting more money, If that's our motivation for following and worshiping Christ, I dare say we have made some kind of idol that we call Christ who isn't actually Christ because Christ isn't preeminent in that relationship. We are, right? And so many Christians live like pagans even today. When you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols however you were led. Paul states this as a matter of fact. This was your condition. Then in verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You, You know your previous condition. You know that in your previous condition you never would have worshipped Christ as Lord because that meant dying to yourself right? You never would have confessed Christ as Lord because you lived like you were Lord. You were led to the idols and not to Christ. By, in your own unrighteousness, by your own depraved mind, in your own conscience, you were led to mute idols, idols that can't do anything for you anyway. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is a curse and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Here, Paul makes known the truth of unconditional election and irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints. In one verse, verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can confess that Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, which means in and of myself, by my own will and my own desires and my own depraved mind, I will never confess that Christ is Lord. To profess with Christ about his lordship, about his sovereignty, about his governance over all things, I will never do that in and of my own nature. Only the Spirit can awaken that within me. Only the Holy Spirit can place that within me. And so we learn first off, and Paul wants his audience to know this, you're talking about gifts of the Spirit, spiritual gifts. Don't you know that you are not capable of moving the Spirit? Instead, the Spirit moves you. At the same time, we see that no one curses Jesus if he is speaking by the Spirit of God, if he is controlled by the Spirit of God, if he is compelled by the Spirit of God. And there we see the perseverance of the saints. We we don't lose our salvation if we lose our grip on God or if we let loose of God because it is not up to us to keep hold of God in the first place. Instead, it is the Holy Spirit who holds us fast. When the Holy Spirit comes in, 
and the Holy Spirit takes control of our lives and control of our wills and conforms our wills to the will of the Father, we stay with Christ. There is no such thing as any true, genuine, sincere Christian who has ever departed from the faith because the Spirit is the one who takes control. And if people believe that they are the ones who must hold on to Christ, their version of Christianity is not Christianity at all. It is a false religion. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know this. The Spirit is in charge here, not you. I recently heard somebody teach that we must... We must pray enough or do enough to take hold of the Spirit's power and to appropriate the Spirit's power in our lives and in our churches. Paul here makes a claim that is entirely opposed to that, contrary to that. The Spirit is in control, not us. It's the Spirit. Jesus taught something similar in John chapter 3. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit, it's like the wind. You can't see where it's coming from or where it's going, but you see the effects. You feel the effects. The Spirit goes where He wills, and you have no say in the matter. This is who the Holy Spirit is. Verse 4, Now, Now that you know about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the same God as the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the same God as the Son, that they are co-eternal and co-equal and co-sovereign. Now that you know this, that the Spirit is running the show in your local church, Corinthians, now that you know this, you should know that there are varieties of gifts. I want you, brothers and sisters, to notice something here. Paul is not writing to the apostles. And so he's not talking about gifts that belonged only to the apostles here. He's writing to a local church. And as he's writing to the local church, he says there are varieties of gifts that belong to to more people than just the apostles. Even though there are varieties of gifts, not everybody has the same gifting, right? I've been in a few places where everybody just wants everybody to look the same and to have the same gift. Some charismatics fall into this category, right? Where upon the moment of salvation, everyone speaks in tongues as a sign of their conversion, as a sign of the Holy Spirit coming in. But Paul here says, there are varieties, of gifts, not just one. But there is one Spirit who provides varieties of gifts. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. Now, when we hear this word ministries, we, because of our 21st century North American context, when we, when we hear this, the word ministries, we think automatically of programs, don't we? We got the youth ministry, we got the young adult ministry, we got the senior adult ministry. We got the nursery, we got the children's ministry. We got the women's ministry, we got the men's ministry, we got the music 
ministry. We've got the preaching ministry. We've got the media ministry. And we separate it all out like there are a bunch of different little organizations within the church, right? Paul here is not talking about programs. I'm not saying that having different programs we call ministries in the church is necessarily evil, right? I, I think probably the lesser the better. I don't think it's evil to do that. I don't think it's inherently sinful. I think there is a danger there in separating the single body of Christ out. But Paul's not even talking about that here. When he says ministry, he means acts of service. There are a variety of ministries. Not everybody is going to be serving in exactly the same way, right? Everybody is going to be serving differently in different capacities, maybe a different number of things. Everybody's going to be carrying different loads of service in the church. Someone may be, we'll put it in our modern context, right? Someone may be making coffee. Someone may be preparing for the Sunday morning worship service. Someone may be leading music. Someone may be preaching. Someone may be helping to keep an eye on the children. Someone may be greeting people as, as others come in the door. Someone may be really good at building relationships, and so, so they have taken it upon themselves to do the service of outreach and of visitation. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And who is the same Lord? Jesus Christ. So all of these ministries are in service to King Jesus alone, even though we are serving one another. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. And so while I am preaching this message, while you are hearing the word of God, it is going to impact each person a different way. There are varieties of effects. When the Spirit moves, Paul says, there are varieties of effects. Not everyone feels the Spirit the same way. Not everyone has the same dynamic with the Holy Spirit because each person is different. It's important to recognize this because there are so many so many groups who when they talk about the Holy Spirit moving, they say, nope, this is how the Holy Spirit moves in no way, in no way else. But Paul here clearly says there are varieties of effects in one congregation. Now Paul has made a shift in his language here, if you haven't noticed this. He has gone from talking solely about the local church as a group, now to talking about individuals within the local church, experiencing God, experiencing the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit, the effects of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit and the ministries that the Holy Spirit calls us into. This is not an individualistic passage of Scripture, but it is addressed to the individuals of the church as the gathered body. So he's still writing to the church at large, but he's talking about individuals here. In verse 7 he says, But to each one individual is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul's talking about spiritual gifts like they are normative for the church. And for the church at Corinth... The spiritual gifts were a manifestation of the Spirit, such that when those spiritual gifts were exercised, you knew that's the Holy Spirit at work. 
And you could tell the, the Holy Spirit is upon that person because that person is practicing his or her spiritual gift. And it looks different with everyone, right? With every individual. But we know this for sure. Each one, how many? Each one. Every individual who is part of the community of faith and who is in Christ is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? Is it a sign of salvation? Well, no. Paul gives us a different purpose for these spiritual gifts. Manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So these aren't apostolic sign gifts Paul is talking about here. Oh, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts that are normative and they are given for the common good, for mutual edification within the church. So if God gives one the ability to sing, that person is called, like, if you have the gift, you're called to use it in the context of the local church. So a person is called to sing. We are called to sing, not as a show, not as a performance, but for the edification of the local church. Someone has the gift of preaching, teaching. That person is called to exercise that gift, not in order to exalt himself, not in order to feel cool and stand in a pulpit, but in order for the common good to be accomplished in the congregation, for the edification of the body of believers at large. Now, this is impossible if our Christianity is individualistic. We cannot practice our spiritual gifts for the common good if if we're not even part of a community of faith, right? It's one thing it means to be part of a local church, and one reason being part of a local church is essential for Christian faith. Because without being a part of a local church, we can't practice our spiritual gifts, the manifestation of the Spirit, for the common good. We can't actually be Christians if we're not in a local church, right? Because being Christians means edifying the body of Christ. Being the church means edifying the body of Christ. Rather than tearing it down, rather than being puffed up, and rather than being individualistic. For the common good. Verse 8. For to one is given. Now, Paul doesn't explain what these spiritual gifts are, what it means. We can debate all day about what it means, but, but Paul seems to believe in the first century as he is writing this to the church at Corinth to each one seems to think that it's normative people would have these spiritual gifts. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles. And to another, prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. Now we will get into a couple of those in the coming weeks, really define them, work them out, parse them out, so I'm not going to do that this morning. Again, we can debate about exactly what Paul means when he lists those, but we cannot debate about the fact that Paul sees them as normative in the church for each one. 
that those are manifestations of the Spirit he expected in the congregation. Maybe not all at once, maybe not in every age, maybe not in every church, but those are manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things. Who works these things? The Spirit, not people. It is not something that people contrive. It is not something that people work out in themselves, practice enough to do. Prophesying is not something that I can just, I I can stand in front of a mirror and practice techniques all day, but only the Spirit can cause a person to prophesy and to have the gift of prophecy, right? One and the same Spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually just as he, the Spirit, wills. This is why Paul began with the sovereignty of the Spirit in the church, the effectual work of the Spirit in the church, and the fact that as people we cannot move the Spirit to do anything. No, it is the Spirit who moves us. It is the Spirit who stirs the community. It is the Spirit who draws people in. Gifts are distributed to each one individually as the Spirit wills, not as we will. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So we see the Holy Spirit in this text. We see Christ in this text. Christ is the one exalted And Paul identifies the church, the local church and the universal church, as Christ's body. And so we have Christ, and we have the body of Christ, his church. And within the church, there's this movement of the Holy Spirit, causing the body of Christ to work as it ought to, for the edification of Christ's body. And again, it's worth repeating We can't edify the body unless we are part of the body. And Paul will get at that later on in this chapter. Like, the eye cannot say to the ear, I don't need you, and the hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. We we need each other, and we need community. This enlightens us as to what it means to be a, a member of a local church. And we see how in verses 13 and 14. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. By one what? Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. We were baptized into one body. So it is the Holy Spirit who actually makes baptism effectual, right? People all the time get up in arms about the method of baptism. And which method of baptism is effectual and which method of baptism is not effectual, right? Uh, There's a reason in probably the 60s AD, most likely the apostles writing the Didache wrote about baptism, yeah, immerse in warm water if possible, but if you don't have water around, go ahead and sprinkle, right? Right? Because the baptism itself is not effectual, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes everything effective. 
if we just get wet, but the Holy Spirit is not making it effectual, nothing happens. We just get wet. By, by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Lutheran or Baptist or Pentecostal or Methodist or Presbyterian. We were all baptized into one body. And here there's this weird conglomeration. Paul is like talking about local church and universal church simultaneously, right? Whether Jews or Greeks, so there is no distinction in Christ between Jews and Greeks now. The gospel was given first to the Jews and then to the Greeks, but now we are in Christ, so we are not Jews or Greeks anymore, you know, the Jewish people and the Gentile nations. We're not that anymore. Once we are in Christ, we are identified with Christ and we are one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, we are one body. Whether slaves or free, we are one body. There's no distinction now between slave and free. There's no difference in socioeconomic status in God's eyes. As believers, we're supposed to be holding all things in common anyway. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. And Paul returns to this drinking imagery all of the sudden, right? It's like he wants to, it's like he wants to keep going back to the Lord's Supper, like he wants to keep going back to the Eucharist. But this time, he's not talking about a physical Eucharist. He's, he's talking about actually drinking of the Holy Spirit, like getting drunk on the Holy Spirit. He says something similar in Ephesians, doesn't he? Don't get drunk with wine. Instead, get drunk on the Spirit. And so here he talks about, we were all made to drink of the one Spirit, which is very passive, right? Like the Holy Spirit is the one who comes in and gets us drunk on the Spirit, and we don't have a say in the matter. We were all made to drink of one Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit. For the body of Christ is not one member but many. And here we learn something about church membership. So before we even get into like the details of spiritual gifts, which we will get into in the coming months. <laughs> I said months, man. You ready for that? In the coming weeks, we learn what it means to be the member, a member of a local church and a member of the kingdom of Christ. And so we, we dispel right from the outset any notion that church membership is about having our names listed on a church roll. Now, to keep records is not a bad thing. But just having your name on a church roll doesn't make you a member of a church in God's eyes. A member of the church means the same thing as being a member of the body of Christ. And here in this passage, what does it mean to be a member of the body of Christ? Well, it means you are with the rest of the body, exercising your skills and your abilities for the edification of the body of Christ, because that is the exaltation of Christ in this world. That's, that's what it is. As we meet together and edify one another with our spiritual gifts, whatever those spiritual gifts are. The body is not one member, but many. So we have the local church and Douglas Reformed Church when we have membership like this. This is what I want it to be, 
right? Is what I think is biblical. I don't just want it to be names on a roll. If, if you're just putting your name on a roll sheet to have the membership status, don't do that. No, come in, exercise your spiritual gifts. If you just want to visit for a long time, that's cool. But if you want to covenant with us, come exercise your spiritual gifts for the edification of the body at large. And that's what it means to be a member of the local church. And then there are many local churches that are members of the body of Christ. So each local church is pulling its part too, right? Serving according to the gifts present in it, in a legitimate way, not in some made-up way. For the body is not one member, but many. Lone wolf Christianity is no Christianity at all. To say, I really love Jesus, but I don't really care for the church, proves that you don't love Jesus and you're not a part of his kingdom or his body. Because when we are a part of Christ, when we are a member of his body, when we are in him, each one is given a spiritual gift that is worked out in the context of the local church. That's where I want to stop this morning. And the only encouragement that I can give, the way that I can edify this body of believers this morning, with a text like that, and we're just barely getting into spiritual gifts so far and the work of the Holy Spirit in the local church, but the only way I can encourage us and edify us this morning is to say, with this group here, Let's keep doing what we are already doing. Each one with a spiritual gift, using that to edify the body of Christ. And not every spiritual gift is going to be as publicly visible as preaching or leading music. But each one has a spiritual gift to be exercised. Now, there's no guarantee that our spiritual gifting will always remain the same. As the Holy Spirit wills, He can change it according to what He wants us to do. I would encourage us never to mock the gifts of the Holy Spirit because I believe they are legitimate and they are normative and we'll get more into what that means in the coming weeks. I do not believe they are practiced in many places in a legitimate way, but I believe there is a legitimate way that the Spirit manifests in the congregation for the edification of the body of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, and the, the glorification of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is the one who wills that and works that out. But there is a guarantee here that if we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit gifts us for service in the kingdom of Christ. Period. If you don't necessarily know your spiritual gift, talk to an elder about it, and we can help work that out for you. The best advice that I could give, just start doing a bunch of stuff. <laughs> and if you're not good at something, then move on to something else until you find what the Spirit has gifted you for. But chances are that if you have a desire to do something, 
that desire itself is an indication of your calling in Christ because the Holy Spirit places that in us. So if we are in Christ, we have a desire to serve a certain way, whether that is as an elder or a deacon or someone who watches children or someone who plays music or someone who prepares food. Chances are that's your gifting. Someone passionate about seeing the effects of the Holy Spirit that could be your calling. I think we need some charismatic, genuinely charismatic people in the church, not fake people, right? And sadly, I, th I think Reformed people often discredit that very quickly. I am a cessationist in the sense that I believe the apostolic sign gifts have ceased, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. I think he's talking about gifts given to the congregation for the edification of the church, not as a sign of salvation, not as a sign of legitimate new prophecy, but for the mutual edification of the church body. And so let's serve one another. Let's serve the congregation who has so graciously provided us this building. Let's serve other Christians around the world. Let's serve our community, those outside the church, which Paul has already gotten at in 1 Corinthians around chapter 5, right? Let's serve this community. Let's serve Cochise County. Let's serve our government. Let's serve our nation. Let's serve our world because the kingdom of Christ is at hand and that's what God has placed us here to do. And he has given the manifestation of the Spirit to each one for such a purpose. Amen.